Open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 1. And we have, as I've mentioned to you, we've been studying for most of this year who Jesus is. We've talked about Jesus asked this question in Matthew chapter 16 to his disciples and said, Who do people say that I am? They said, Some say you're Elijah, some say you're a great prophet. And then he said, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so we spent a good part of this year looking at who Jesus is and especially the fact that God gave his Son to us. And of all the times of the year to talk about that, what a great time to talk about the fact that God gave his Son. We've seen that it means, it means more than the things we've talked about, but the three things we've looked at are primarily that the fact that he gave his son's life in your place and in my place tells you how valuable you are to him. He was willing to give his own son's life. We've heard that so much that it almost doesn't mean anything to us anymore. But if you have children, think about that. Think about sacrificing your child's life for an enemy of yours. Someone that has spoken evil of you. Someone that has scorned you, turned their back on you. Someone you've tried to give presents to and they've thrown them back at you and spit at you. And then you turn and give your own child's life for them. That's what God did for you. Because that's who you and I were. And then we saw that it tells us that God became God. In the enormity of who He is, became a man, became a baby, and then became a man and lived among us. And we saw that what that meant is because Christ is God, whatever you do to Him, whatever you see of Him, however you talk of Him, whatever you do with Him in your life is what you do with God. There's a wonderful line in a popular Christmas song about Mary, did you know that this child of yours is the Son of God? And there's a, there's, a, there's a line in there where it says, did you know that when you kissed your baby, you kissed the face of God? What you do with Jesus in your life is what you do with God. You cannot separate God from Jesus. You cannot say, well, Jesus is a great prophet, he was a great leader, but, you know, but, but, uh, but, he, but he is God, because he said he was. You can't say he's a great leader, or a great teacher, or a great prophet, because he said he was the Son of God. That means he's either a fool, a liar, or he is who he says he is. He doesn't give you the room to believe that he's a great man. And then we've spent the last part of this year looking at the fact that this means that he's, he, we can, if we, as Jesus said in, to, to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So that through understanding him and studying him, we get a full a picture of what God's character and his nature is really like. And we spent time looking at that character and nature, especially the aspect of God's heart, that God is a generous heart, a giving heart. God's not holding things back from us. God has great vision and great plan for your life to bless you and to prosper you and to see you grow and expand. But he also has that vision for people that don't know him yet and for people that are hurting. And that's why we're here. And then we've begun to look at a topic which may seem strange for this time of year, but it's in, it's in Acts chapter 1. And of course, this is the story where Jesus has been raised from the dead he has walked among the people for about 50 days. And we're going to pick up, he's called his disciples to come to the top of a mountain. In verse 9 of Acts chapter 1, Now when he had spoken these things to them, 
While they watched, he was taken up in a cloud, and a cloud received him out of their sight. A cloud received him out of their sight. So up until now, they could see him. They could touch him. They could feel him. And now he physically ascended into this cloud, and a cloud received him out of their sight. It doesn't say he disappeared. It said he disappeared from their sight. And we've talked about the fact that when he left here, we're going to read. He was taken, a cloud received him out of their sight, and while they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, two men stood by them in white apparel who said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into heaven? Well, that would seem like a pretty obvious thing. They've just seen Jesus physically levitate up off the earth and disappear into a cloud, and they say, Why are you looking up in the cloud? And here's where we're getting to. This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will also come in a like manner as you saw him go into heaven. We're celebrating at this time of year Jesus' first coming. But I really had it in my heart as we finish this discussion of who Jesus is to talk about the fact that he's coming back, his second coming. So that's kind of a strange thing to talk about at Christmas time, but it's all about coming. And I believe he's coming soon. And the, 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 the key word for us is to be ready. So I've asked you the question, are you ready? And we're going to look at that. But he's coming back. We've looked at the fact that he's come when he, when he came before, he came as a little baby. And wise men came and worshipped him and brought gifts to him and shepherds came and there was a great preparation for his coming. There were angels in the sky. The stars aligned themselves and there was a tremendously bright star by which these shepherds and these wise men used it to guide them to find this place in this little stable where he was born. And that things happened in the heavens and things prophetically were happening all around. And there was a man that was sent by God as a forerunner John the Baptist, who came to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And then we've talked about the fact that the Bible tells us just the opposite about His second coming. That there are no angels heralding it. There's no men on TV telling you a date when it's going to come back. (laughs) They may be there, but God didn't put them there. In fact, we're going to see scriptures that tell us that no man, Not even Jesus knows the time of His return. Only the Father knows. So instead of great preparation, great heralding, great announcing of this coming, it's going to come like a thief in the night, suddenly. But I believe there is a preparation for those who know the Lord. And that's what we're talking about. This is not a heralding, this is not an announcing that goes on on the outside, in the news, or in the, but it goes on, it's a preparation in here. And the question I sense God asking me, not only for me, but for you, for I'm responsible for you to Him, is are we ready? Are we ready?
So we've seen that the Jesus is coming back. Although Acts 1 tells us he's the same Jesus, he's not coming back in the same form in which he left. And what we mean by that, and we've talked before, that when he walked on this earth before, he walked in the body of a, of a natural man like yours and mine. He was God on the inside, but he was a man and on the outside. And that, that, that John, the apostle, at the Last Supper, was reclining with him with his head on his chest. He could get that close to him. But we saw that same John in Revelation chapter 1 when he's on the Isle of Patmos some 70 or 80 years later. He saw Jesus again, but he didn't go lay his head on his shoulder because he saw Jesus in his glory, in his majesty, and his power. And the Bible says, John says, and I fell at his feet like a dead man. Not because he was so religious, because he could respond no other way. So you and I live in flesh, veiled in flesh, and with the veil of our limited understanding. But if Jesus were literally to appear here the way he did before John, we'd all do the same thing. Because the power and majesty of his glory and his beauty is so far beyond anything your mind or my mind can begin to grasp. But it has an effect on everything because his glory and his power emanate from him. And that's the one that's coming back. He's the same Jesus. He loves us. He's our Lord and Savior. But He's coming back. He's in a different form now. And He is to be worshipped and to be honored. And we've seen that what that means is the one that's coming back is Lord. The one aspect of who He is we haven't really dwelt on. But the one that's coming back, who Jesus ultimately is, is Lord. And we've seen that there's three aspects to that. There could be more we talk about. The first is ownership. A Lord is the one that owns. And become, you become Lord or Master because you've created. And we've seen that, that a brand new car, the reason that they, that dealership can give you ownership is because they got that ownership from the manufacturer. And the reason the manufacturer owns that car is they made that car. We talked before about the fact that no man can own another man. Or no man can own a woman. Or no woman can own a man. Why? Because you didn't make them. We can serve, but we don't own. Because ownership comes by being the one that made and created. But there is one who made you. There is one who created you. There is one who creates every beat of your heart and every breath of your lungs. And that is your Lord. And your Savior. We've looked at scriptures that say all things were made by Him and through Him and for Him and apart from Him, nothing was made. And therefore, He is owner of all. We saw the second thing, we've seen the second thing that lordship means is authority. We've talked about what authority means. It basically means what the, what the centurion understood authority mean. He said, I've got men under me that understand my authority. Because what I say do, they do. When I say go, they go. When I say come, they come. When I say do this, they do it. It's really simple. Authority is really simple to determine whether you're under or not. Do you do what you're told by the authority? Especially when you're told something you don't like. See, it's real easy to flow with somebody when they're telling you, oh, have another piece of chocolate cake. (laughs) Or to do something you really want to do. That's not a test of whether you're under authority or not. The test of whether you're under authority is what do you do when you're told to do something you don't want to do or don't think you can. And we saw that authority comes from being under authority. 
and that Jesus' authority was because he was perfectly under the source of authority, which is his Father God. And so one of the questions is, if he's your Lord, that means you're under his authority. We've talked about the fact that we're, we try to be in his authority, but we're not so concerned about being under his authority. And it's like trying to squirt a hose that's not connected to the faucet. Nothing's going to come out because the source of that water is not the hose. The source of that authority is not you. It's the one you're connected to. And you are connected to some authority, whether it's the Lord or it's the Lord of this earth. It's up to you. But no man, no woman is an authority unto themselves. I don't care what poems they write. God's the one that decides this. Praise God. All right. Well, we're going to move on. And we're going to now talk about what does all this mean for us? What does all this mean for us? So let's turn to Matthew chapter 24. There are some sections of Scripture I just love to read over and over again. My God shall supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Eyes have not seen, ears have not heard, nor has entered the hearts of men all that God has prepared for those who love Him. <laughs> We're more than conquerors through Him who loves us. I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor nothing nothing's able to ever be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. I love those scriptures. I don't like Matthew 24 and 25. <laughs> but it's in there. And it's in there because God loves us. God doesn't put things in the Bible to scare us. The book of Revelation is not there to scare you. It says, blessed are those who read the words of this prophecy and keep them. God loves us. The same God we've talked about that's generous and loving is the God that because He loves us will prepare us. Because He loves us, He will prepare us. Matthew 24 and 25, in case you don't know, in case you've not read them, are all about what's going to happen. And it's really about being prepared for what's going to happen. Matthew 24, the the disciples have been looking at the temple and making comments to Jesus about the temple. And Jesus tells them that, that every stone in that temple is going to get thrown down. In verse 3, they come out to the Mount of Olives and the disciples... We're going to skip through. I'm only going to read a couple of verses because I'm, my purpose is not to go through this and understand this right now because I don't want to have... That's not where I think God's taking us right now. some point, we may do a study of all this. But I want to just highlight a particular aspect of this. Verse 3, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, which is across the Kidron Valley from the, from the temple... The disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when these things are going to be, because he just said this temple is going to be destroyed. When are these things going to be, and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Now go over to verse 27. This is Jesus still talking. For as the lightning comes down from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, that's how fast it's going to happen. Let's go over to verse 36. But of the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. As in the days of Noah were, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days of the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until the the day that Noah entered the ark. 
and did not know until the flood came and took all away, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two will be in the field, one will be taken, one will other, the other will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, the other left. Verse 42, watch therefore, for you do not know the hour of the Lord's coming. But know this, if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also are to be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And that's what the message of Matthew 24 and 25 really is. Be ready. He's coming back. And when he comes, he's coming quickly. There will not be horn, you know, there will not be angels appearing in the sky sounding his arrival. You will not get an advanced banner at the bottom of CNN news or Fox news. He is going to come quickly, suddenly, and unexpectedly for those who are not ready. That's what it says. And now there are three parables that Jesus teaches here. Three parables in this discussion. The first is about the faithful and the evil servant. Talking about a master made a faithful servant ruler. But the ruler decided, well, the master's not going to come back for a while. So he took their food and beat them. And then the master came back when he wasn't expecting. The second parable is about the wise and the foolish virgins. You have to understand, know this, understand this parable. Their practice of weddings in that day, as a wedding wasn't, you got an invitation, you know, a month or two ahead of time, and you showed up ten minutes before the wedding starts. You went through a half an hour wedding service, and then you went to the reception. Although, you know, there are people that actually go to the reception and don't go to the wedding. I wonder what they're receiving. Anyway, this was a several-day event with much preparation. What would happen is the, 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 bride, the, the, the bride would be kept in a place and, and her attendants would take care of her. And, the, the, and, they, and they would wait along the path between where the bride was being prepared and where the groom was to come for where he was to come from where he was to come. And they, they would wait there and they'd just wait until he was coming. And that's what the church is doing now. We're waiting for the bridegroom to come. Because the church is the bride. And, and the, bride, the bride of the church is now being prepared. We're getting ready. Because he's coming. He's coming. And these, these attendants, the virgins in this case, would line the path up there. And when it would get dark, they would have to light their lamps. They had lamps. And they didn't know how long they were going to be waiting. So they would bring oil with them. So that in case this oil that was in the lamp would go out, they'd have enough oil to be there waiting so that when he came, they would be prepared to usher him to the bride. And that's the background to this. And let's read down through it because it's, it's important to what we're talking about here. Verse chapter 25 now. The kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. So they're waiting for him. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. 
Say wise. Say foolish. It's up to you which you are. Five of them were wise, five of them were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps with no oil with them. In other words, no extra oil. But the wise took oil in their vessels along with their lamps. And while the bridegroom was delayed, they slumbered and slept. That's where the church is now. Most of the church is asleep. Has no idea really what time we're in, prophetically. But while the bridegroom delayed, they slumbered and slept. At midnight, a cry was heard. He's coming. A cry was heard, and behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. And so then all the virgins arose, trimmed their lamps, got them ready. And the foolish virgin said to the wise, Well, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered and said, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourself. And while they went to buy, in other words, they weren't prepared, so they now went to get prepared. I'll say that again. The five that were foolish were not prepared. They knew what to do. It was not like this was something they didn't understand. It was not like this was something that they didn't... The the, the five wise ones didn't have special training or a special calling or a special revelation. They all knew the same thing. They all had the same opportunity. They just made different choices of what to do while they were waiting. And when the call came that the bridegroom was coming, those that weren't prepared now ran out to get prepared. But notice what happens. Verse 10. And while they went to buy more oil, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding and the door was shut. And afterwards the other virgins came and said, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said to them, Surely I say to you, I don't know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the time nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Now I've heard all kinds of teachings on what this means, what the oil means. The oil means it's the Holy Spirit. So he's coming for those first who are flowing in the Holy Spirit. I've heard all kinds of, and I've done some study before this. There are all kinds of theories that you can support with all kinds of scriptures. But here's something to learn about parables. A parable was given by Jesus to give a message, not to be the basis of doctrine. So you can't take everything that's in a parable and make a doctrine out of it. Now here, look here, because he tells you here. He tells the disciples and therefore us, what's the message we're to get out of this parable? It's in verse 13. Watch therefore, for you know neither the time nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. The message of this parable, the message of the wise servant, the the unrighteous servant, and the message of the one that follows this, which is the talents, which we'll talk about later, the message of all of them is be ready. And that's this message. We're to be ready because he's coming soon. Say, you don't know. The Bible says you don't know the hour, time of the hour. But elsewhere he says, but you can tell the season. Because he goes on and talks about a fig tree. You can tell by looking at a fig tree if you know anything about horticulture. You can tell if you're trained in horticulture. You can tell by looking at it what's coming next. Yeah. 
My mother was a horticulture. She knew all the, all the Latin names. <laughs> I can't grow poison ivy. <laughs> we went over the gardenias last year. I won't tell you <laughs> the story of that. But the point is this. Even I <laughs> can tell what's coming next. When the leaves fall off the tree, I've got a good idea what season's coming next. When I begin to see little buds coming out with all my lack of understanding and skill, I still, duh, I can tell, ah, it's a change of season. Spring's coming. So if you're walking with the Lord to any degree and you've got your eyes open to any degree, you can have some sense of where things are. And the purpose of this study we're going through is not to give us an in-depth study of the end times and of what's coming. That would take a long time, and that's not the focus that I sense. The focus of what I sense God's telling us is simply be ready, and, and the way you're ready is know who's coming back. Know who He is. Know who he's, who's coming back. Know who He is. All right, so how do we get ready? We're going to go over seven things. We won't cover them all today. There may be more, but these are the seven. The problem is, every time I look into it, I see something else. (laughs) All right, go with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. While you're turning there, a verse I didn't turn to, but it talks about it. It's in Romans 14, I think it's verse 13. It says, For we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So it's kind of important to know who He is. In fact, it's more important than knowing who He is. It's more important to know Him. Where did I tell you? Acts chapter 2? All right. This is one I saw last night as I was kind of reading through. This wasn't originally in my notes. Now, we've just looked at Acts chapter 1. Jesus has been raised from the dead. Now He's ascended into heaven. They watched Him go up and they were getting lost in the fact that he's going up, hoping, you know, they felt lost. Their leader's gone. You know, they lost him once. Now he got him back for 50 days. Now he's gone again. And now an angels, two angels appear and said, the same one that's leaving is going to come back. And so they go back and they, they do what he instructed them to do before. They wait in prayer in the upper room there. And then on the day of Pentecost, you know the story, the Spirit of God descended on the men, filled the place where they were. We talked about this before. And, the, and they got filled with the Holy Spirit where the evidence of speaking in tongues. They spilled out into the streets. They, see, when the Spirit of God comes like that, you can't contain Him. You can't, oh, we're going to talk about this next year. You can't contain Him inside. Oh. You can't contain Him inside the church. You can't just have nice little bless me services. Wasn't this feel good? Wasn't it a great service? When the Spirit of God is released, when the Spirit of God is released, they spilled out into the streets and they were acting in such a way that people gathered around and says, are they drunk? And Peter, the Apostle Peter, who only a few weeks before was so afraid for himself when a young girl asked him, Don't you, aren't you one of his groups? Three times he denied that he even knew Jesus. This same Peter now stands up boldly to tell them what they've done. And we're not going to go through all of this, but go to verse 32, Acts 2.32. This Jesus, he's talking, that's what we're studying, isn't it? Who this Jesus is? And the one this Jesus is coming back? 
This Jesus was raised up, of which you're all, we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received the fa- from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out that which you now see and hear. Let's go down to verse 36. Therefore, all of the house of Israel know assuredly that God has, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, Lord and Christ. Notice, He didn't say, here, Savior. Although he is. He didn't say healer. He said he has made him Lord. That's what we're studying. God has made him Lord and Christ. Now look at verse 37. Now when they heard that, we're talking about getting ready. When they heard this, heard what? Who he was. When they heard who he was that was crucified. When they heard and, and, the, and what helped them to hear was to see the demonstration of the Spirit. To see the power of the Spirit pouring out through them helped to get their attention. But once they had their, he had their attention, now they had to hear words. Oh, this is, fits into what God's telling me to do next year. I, I can hardly contain myself, but we've got to do this. They had to hear words. There was a power of the Spirit released. They saw signs and wonders and evidence coming out of these men who they knew were untrained. They were uneducated Galileans. That was not a compliment. That meant hick. And they saw the power of God coming out of them. And they're saying, what does this mean? Peter now, one of the hicks, (laughs) stands up and boldly proclaims, the one you crucified... God's made him Lord and Christ. There was such power in those words. Look at their response. Verse 37. When they heard this, when they heard the word that was spoken, (laughs) they were cut to the heart. Some translations say the quick, that means the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? The sign of true repentance is not I'm sorry. It's not even forgive me. Those are in there, but the biblical evidence of true repentance is, what shall I do? And they were brought to that place by a revelation of who he was. So the first response to getting ready to see, when you see who he is, is to make sure you're right with him. To make sure when you see He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. He is Lord. Is to make sure He is your Lord. You've heard me share before. I was raised in church. Several different denominations. Served in church. The last church we were in Before we got saved, I was a deacon. I was on the board. 
I became a personal confidant to the pastor. And if I had died then, I'd have gone right to hell. With all my good works, all my service in the church, if you had told me, what's John 3.16, I could have quoted it to you backwards and forwards. But with all that knowledge, I would have split hell wide open. I, I, I knew the Bible said Jesus is Lord. But I had never responded to that revelation that I had to make a choice to make Him the Lord of my life. And when that revelation hit me, now I have a choice. I either accept Him as my Lord or I reject Him as my Lord. But I do something. And their reaction, without thinking, not because they were told to, is, Oh my Lord, what? Shall we do? Apostle Paul had the same reaction in Acts chapter 9. I mean, this is a man out persecuting the church. He wasn't doing it because he was an evil man. He was zealous for God. He thought he was serving God, doing what's... Oh! Oh! There's so many people out there in churches, faithful in churches. There may be some here this morning that, that, that love God. He loved God. He loved God. He was zealous for the things of God more than most of us. But he had no revelation of who Jesus was, so he was persecuting him. He saw Jesus as a heretic to interfere with people's walk with God. But on a road to Damascus, in the bright sunny day at noontime when the sun's at its brightest, he was hit by a revelation that knocked him off his horse. And he got up and he heard voice, a voice, he heard a voice to have spoken to him saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? See, Jesus took it personally because it was his church that was being persecuted. Why are you persecuting me? And Saul's answer is, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus who you are persecuting. And when he had a revelation of who Jesus was, his next response was, What must I do? Let's go over to Acts chapter 3. Verse 14. Now what's happened in the meantime is there's an explosion in the church. After, after Peter's first sermon, 3,000 get saved. Now Peter and John go into the temple, going into the temple. There's a, young man, there's a man there who's been lame from his birth. He's, he's raised up by the power of the name of Jesus. The authority of that name raises this man up. And there's this huge commotion all over again. And Peter begins to speak. And again, he preaches in verse, let's go to verse 14. (laughs) But you denied the Holy One, the just, and asked for a murderer. In other words, you chose Barabbas, a murderer, over the Holy One of Israel. And you killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which you are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong 
whom you see and know. Yes, faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, verse 17, I know that you did this in ignorance as also did your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ would suffer has thus been fulfilled. Verse 19, Repent therefore, we're talking about getting ready, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. There are people out there trying to get refreshed without repenting. They're trying to get relieved and refreshed and restored without getting right with God. And the only way you can do that is with stuff this world offers. Alcohol, drugs, any form of addiction. You ready for this one? Food. Uh, We obviously you don't need drugs to live, but food to eat. But it's when food becomes your refreshing. When food becomes your solace. Anything other than the Lord becomes your source of comfort and solace and strength. That's a God to you. And it will not satisfy. It promises to refresh and restore, but it only enslaves and steals. But notice before the refreshing can come, there has to be repentance. Now I'm talking here about people, we're talking about getting right for His coming. I'm talking at this point about people that have not come to Christ. That's what we're talking about right now. So the news of His coming should cause people to repent and call upon Him as their Lord and Savior. But we're still talking about that we've got to be right with Him also. Okay, notice this. And after the repentance, a time of refreshing, look at this, may come from the presence of the Lord. That's the only way you're going to get refreshing. The only real refreshment comes in His presence. And that He may send Jesus, who was preached to you before, verse 21, whom heaven must receive or hold until the times of the restoration of all things by which God has spoken by the mouth of all His prophets since the world began. So this is right at the point when he's been crucified, raised from the dead, and then ascended into heaven. The result of that is there's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. People wonder, what's going on around? Peter now does what it takes. He preaches the gospel. He proclaims the gospel. When he proclaims the gospel, the Spirit of God cuts into their hearts and pricks their hearts. And now they've got a choice and they repent and say, what must we do? And now he's going on to explain that this same Jesus has been, who is the source of our, our, our his presence is a source of our, of our refreshing. He's been taken up into heaven and he's been held in heaven right now for a while until the fullness of all things. But he's coming, this same Jesus is coming back. Is coming back. What must we do to be ready? Well, the first thing to be ready is you've got to be sure you're saved. You've got to be sure you're saved. Say, so, well, I come to church. I didn't read about coming to church here. We'll talk about that later on. 
I don't want to, the whole purpose of this is to get us ready, not scared on us. But there are people that come to church that think they're saved that aren't. Now, don't go around questioning, oh, I don't know if I'm saved or not. It's real easy. Is the Spirit of God in you? Does that Bible speak to you? When I first got saved, I had that, I, was this real? Because I had a wonderful experience. But, you know, experiences can fade away. And a couple of days later, I said, was that real or not? So I just, God, was that real? Show me that that's real. And I opened my Bible to a verse that was Ephesians 1.13, which basically says that, that, that when you come to Christ, He gives you His Spirit. And it goes on to say He's the guarantee, He's the evidence of your salvation and of what's the promise of what's to come. And then I realized before that event, that Bible didn't mean much to me. And it wasn't as if I wasn't educated. But I couldn't, I would read it, but it didn't mean much to me. From the night I got saved on, I couldn't put that book down. It spoke to me and 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 spoke to me. And I saw that's the Spirit of God in me. The author of the book now lives in me. So there's evidence that I was saved. So don't go around with that. But there are people that, that because they intellectually agree with this book, think that they're okay with God. But there has to be some fruit at some point. We'll talk about that later on. James talks about it's not just a faith. There needs to be some corresponding actions, which means some fruit in my life. And the main fruit that the Spirit bursts in us is the love of God, is loving people. That's why he says, if you hate your brother. Now, that doesn't mean you're getting mad at him and you may be holding a grudge. Don't do that. But hate's a pretty strong word. And so what we need, and, and if you're not sure, real simple. Get saved. <laughs> Turn your life over to him. Call upon Him to save you and, and to be your Lord and Savior personally. And so that's the beginning of being ready, is to make sure you're in His family, that you've come to Christ and you've given your life to Him. Now, you may still be wrestling with a control issue. I understand that. But you've made that commitment to give your life to Him. All right, let's go on to the second thing about being ready. Turn with me to, um, to Romans chapter 13. This next door. Verse 11. Now what he's talked, <laughs> what he's talked about in verses 1 through 10 is he's talked about, first of all, being under authority. Sound familiar? He's talked with being under the authorities that God puts in your life. See, Authority, how we respond or react to authority is much more important to God than it is to most of us. You don't hear a lot about this. But we say, well, you know, Jesus is my Lord, but I don't have to listen to anybody else. The problem with that is if Jesus, your Lord, has put somebody in your life to represent Him and give direction and I say, I don't have to listen to that person, but I, live, but I serve my Lord, and He's the one that put him there, that presents a problem. Because then you're not listening to Him. And that's what Romans 13 is talking about in the beginning. That authority comes from God. And we found out why it can come from God, because He created everything. He's boss. 
to answer Tony Danza's question, God's the boss. Some of you are too young to understand that. Then he goes on to say, okay, I'm boss. Here's how you're to live. You're to love one another. Not just, oh, I love you, ooey-gooey love, but you're to not put a stumbling block in a brother's way. You're not to do anything by which a brother could be harmed. In other words, you're to govern your life by how, what effect you have on others, not so much what effect they have on you. You know, I don't find anywhere in the Bible that says, I have a right to be loved by anybody. I do have all kinds of places in my Bible where it says, I'm commanded to love others. But see, if we all do that, then I'll get loved, and you'll get loved. So he's talking about loving one another here. He's talking about not just loving with emotions, but loving by decisions and acts of our will by which I, I put myself under and my knees to prefer you so that if you've even hurt me, I'm not going to hurt you back. We're going to learn more about that later this year. The Bible's way to respond to being hurt is to bless. All right, that was really popular. Let's go on here. I don't want to get distracted here. That's what's involved, it says in verse 11, and, and do this. So obey Him. Obey the authorities that are in your life. Obey His Word. Love one another. And do this knowing that the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. So once you're saved in the kingdom of God, the first thing to do to be prepared is to wake up. Now usually on Sunday mornings I wake up before it's time for me to get up. For some reason this morning I was in a deep sleep. And I have the alarms on my phone. And fortunately I chose the one with the harp sound in it this morning. Because I'm in this dream, and I'm hearing a harp in this dream. And you, all, you know what I'm talking about. And you hear that alarm, it's like, and, and, and there's a process by which you slowly come to and realize, oh, it's the alarm. Now listen carefully. Oh, it's the alarm. And then you remember what the alarm means. I've got to get up. I've got to get out of this nice warm bed into this cool, because we don't have the heat running in our bedroom, because so it's cool, into this cool, that means I've got to get up, I've got to now get my brain working. But it took an alarm to wake me up, because I was asleep. And while I was asleep, I was living in a dream. And the dream wasn't real, but it was real to me. I mean, you've had dreams where your body's even reacting. You wake up from this dream and your heart's pumping or you're perspiring or just maybe, whoo, I want to get back into that dream. That was wonderful, you know. I was on a beach. It was nice and warm. Whatever. And this was not a, this was a good dream. And this alarm's trying to pull something. Listen carefully. Something's trying to pull me out of this dream to reality. But I didn't, it didn't feel like reality at the time. And I even, it was an intrusion into this dream that I was in. Leave me alone. I want to pretend that that, but I needed, I needed that alarm because that dream wasn't real. But there's a reality out there that was going to hit me if I didn't come out of that dream. So the first step to being ready is, 
Or the harp. I can't do a harp, so. Wake up! Realize where we are. Realize what the time is. Not this time, but the time we're living. Realize where you are. Realize where God's placed you in a church. Realize what He wants to do. It's time to come out of our la-la land. You may be in a dream right now of life that's just, oh, this is wonderful. I just want it to continue. Or you may be in a nightmare right now. Or somewhere in between. But it's some form of, of something that you're going through that isn't in touch with, fully in touch with the reality spiritually of where we are and of where you are and of where the Lord is. So the first step for being ready is to hear the alarm and to wake up. And this message is an alarm. This message is an alarm. He's coming soon. We need to be ready. We need to be ready. And the beginning of being ready is to wake up, is to awake from our sleep and recognize the time we're in. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. While you're turning there, I want to read. There's another verse in there I didn't finish. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not reveling in drunkenness and in lewdness and lust and strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Now go to Ephesians 5. Because it says the same thing, basically. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Walk means conduct yourself. Live your life. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things are exposed... All things are exposed, are, all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, because of that, he says to us, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light or shine upon you. See then that you walk circumspectly. The word circumspectly just means looking around you, aware of what was going on back after 9-11. One of the things that, that, the, that they told us to do, and then the new TSA, whatever it's called, the home security people, told us what you need to do is when you're in an airport or some public place, just be aware of what's around you. If you see somebody acting strangely, or if you see a, a, a suitcase that's sitting there and nobody's attended to anyone, become aware of what was going on around you, because apparently back then there were signs that if people who had been around those terrorists, they might have noticed something. And of course, what's happened is we've seen a number of cases lately where people have become aware on airplanes of something strange, and, and plots have been foiled because people were more aware than they were before. 
That danger was there before, obviously, but now they're aware of a danger, so we're more conscious of that threat around us and that, you know, you don't need to be, you know, to be afraid, but aware. So that's what this word, walk circumspectly. That means be aware of what's around you. Be aware of the time. Be aware of the context in which you're sitting. Be aware of your place and where God's put you right now. Be aware, you know, we say, oh, things are getting bad. I wish God would take us out of here. No, we're here on an assignment. So part of waking up is realizing we're here on an assignment. Like Paul saying, then Lord, what am I to do? Why are we here? What are we here to do? We should be excited. We should be in charge. We should be, I am so charged up because I, God's getting our purpose so much clear to me coming for this year. God has a purpose for us and we're in His will. He's going to take care of us and provide for us. He has to. So we should be joyful. We should be full of hope. We're going to see it's called our blessed hope. And that's how we're to look different from the world. Because they're going to look at you, what's this hope that you have in you? What's this confidence? What's this joy you have? When everything around you is not joyful, that's that work of the Holy Spirit, that fruit of the Spirit in our lives that begin to make us look different from the world out there. That draw, The light draws. It was amazing because this warm weather we've had. The other night I was getting ready to go to bed and we've got a, a, one of these lights on the back porch that is motion activated. And it, it was warm enough so that it must have been moths out again, or what, uh, what do they call them? Yeah, moths. Because I saw them flitting around this light. I mean, here we are in December. But what, where were they? Where, they didn't come from the light. They were drawn to the light out of the darkness. But we have to wake up to who we are. We are the light of the world. You are the light of the world now. You and I are the light, the beacon the light to the world, Christ in us is. But that light can't shine if we're asleep and don't realize where we are, what's going on spiritually around us, and where we are spiritually. All right. So the first thing, of course, is to make sure that you're saved. The second thing is to, is to wake up, shake ourselves, realize where we are. The third thing, go with me to John, 1 John chapter 2. And we'll just get this one started. 1 John chapter 2. Verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, that when He appears, that's what we're talking about. Not if He appears, not whether He appears, when. That when He appears, we may have confidence. That's what we're talking about. Because He is coming. The only question, aside from when, is are we going to be confident when He comes? Or look at the alternative. That we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. So when He comes, we're either going to have confidence when He comes, or we're going to be ashamed and want to draw back, one or the other. And right now, we are in a season, I don't mean just the Christmas season, we are in a time in your life and in my life and in this church where we have the opportunity to choose 
whether we're going to be ashamed or confident. It's up to you for you and up to me for me. But our choices with that decision affect the choices that other people make. So John's talking here about when he comes, I want to prepare you so that you have confidence that it's coming and do not pull back because you're feeling ashamed. Okay. Before him, notice we'll be before him. Verse 29. If you, now this is how you do it. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that practices righteousness is born of him. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. It doesn't know and recognize you're a child of God because it doesn't recognize God in you because it doesn't recognize God. Oh, they may say there is a God, but they don't recognize the God who is Jesus who is in you because you've been joined to him. Beloved, verse 2, now we are children of God. When? We'll try that again. When? You better know you're a child of God now. Now, the solution, if you're not, is to go back to point number one, and that's to repent and be converted. But if you've repented, if you've come to Christ, and you've given your life to Him, and you mean that, you are a child of God. But there are people out there that teach, once you're a child of God now, nothing else matters. Because God loves us, and because you're His child, He'd never get upset at you. Everything's going to be wonderful because you're a child of God. That's not what my Bible says. He loves us. Now we are children of God, verse 2. And it has not yet appeared what we shall be. Oh, there's a change coming. But we know this, that when He's revealed, we're like Him. We're going to be like Him. That's the great hope. When He comes down and appears, we're going to suddenly look at it and say, Whoa! Wow! I'm like Him! Now, how did you get to be like Him? If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. We're born again as His child. We are a son of God. Romans, Romans 8 tells us that we are, we are also sons of God and joint heirs with Christ. Oh, there's more to the verse. If indeed you suffer with Him. That means you go through stuff because of who you are. Persecution, it's not sickness and disease. Because when you, people see who you are and Him and you, they'll react to you on the basis of Him. And they'll see that you'll be like Him. Now the question is, you're like Him on the inside, are you going to look like Him on the outside? And I don't mean His eye color and His hair color. I mean because we just, we read, we're to put Christ on. We're to put Christ on. He's in you. You have Him. But have you put Him on? I, I, I've had this, this suit was downstairs in our cedar closet. 
It's a winter suit. It's one of the nicer suits that I have. And, and, and someone tell later on, well, yeah, I'll talk about it now, I think. Well, not really. I found this suit years ago. At a, was, I used to, my law firm was next to a very nice men's, men's store. And, and one of the things they would do in the summer is they'd have a clearance sale out on the street. And I was walking by, and, and, and I saw this suit, and I said, I like that suit. It's quality. It had a nice quality feel to it. So I bought this suit at a very reduced price, and when I went to try it on, oh, there's suits, and there's suits. You can tell when a suit is well-made and well-tailored. It just fits on you, and you feel differently when you wear it. So I keep this in the winter, summertime in a cedar closet downstairs. And I was getting ready, thinking what I'm going to wear today. And I went, you know what, I think I'll wear that suit tomorrow. And I went down in the closet and pulled it out. Now, the only reason I could take that suit out of the closet is because I have it. The only reason I could put it on is I already have it. But if I don't go put it on, you're never going to see it. If it stays in the cedar closet, it's safe. The moss can't get at it. But nobody ever going to be able to see it. If Christ is just in you, and you don't put Him on, you don't begin to act like Him and talk like Him, He's not going to do anybody any good in you. And He's nice and safe in you. The moss won't get at Him. But others will never see Him and be affected by Him. And so it says when he comes back, we're going to realize how much we are like him. And I think whether we're ashamed or confident is going to depend on how much of him we've, allowed, we've put on and allowed to come to the outside. Let me finish one ver- part of the verse and then we'll, we'll end this for this day. But when we see him... When he's revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Look at verse 3. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself because he is pure. The first part of being ready is to make sure, first of all, that you've given your life to Christ, that he's your Lord. The second thing, and really the preliminary step for us, is to wake up and realize the time we're in to realize the urgency, to realize He could come back before you get home today. So we need to be awake. Watch around us. And the third thing, which is what this introduces, is because of that, we need to make sure that we're living our life right before Him. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself. I thought, I thought Jesus' blood purified me. Well, I mean, have you ever had an impure thought since then? If, if Jesus, let's put it this way. If you go home and when you walk in your living room, he's standing there. How are you going to feel? Are you going to be excited and confident? Or are you going to shrink back? If you're shrinking back, you need to find out why. If it's condemnation, you need to deal with the condemnation and get that right. But if it's conviction, you need to deal with that. 
I had this thought come through. I can't say God spoke this to me this morning, but I had this thought this morning. What if I knew today? What if I knew before my head hit that pillow today that he comes, he's coming back? What would I do differently? What would you do between now and... Well, you don't know when. If you knew that sometime before you closed your eyes tonight and put your head on that pillow or went to work... <laughs> He comes back, and this is all over with, and now we stand before him. What difference would that make in your life? What difference that make in what you do, what you say, what you deal with? Because this word of God tells us that could happen today. All I know this is he's coming back. And when he comes back, everything's going to change for us. Now, there are different theories of whether he's going to come back before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, or after the tribulation, in the before the millennium, after the millennium. All kinds of theories out there, and for most of them, there's good scriptures to support them all. I'm not dealing with any of this. The one thing they all agree, and the only thing that's ultimately is important, is he is coming back. And the second thing is, therefore, it behooves us to be ready. That much. And the third thing is, we don't know when. Those three things we know for sure. So let's major on the things we know for sure. Because all the theorizing about when he's coming doesn't help us to get ready for his coming.